0: This is the Serious Seerah Podcast, Episode 2, powered by islamiclearningmaterials.com. dot com. alaykum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Seerah, Episode 2. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and want to discover the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. In today's class, we're going to discuss the following topics. The Arab society before Islam, Islam compared to other faiths, the early life and lineage of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, and finally, my method of teaching the Sira of the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him. Stay tuned for Serious Sira Episode 2. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers. Because, This ummah of yours is one ummah, and I am your Lord, so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the, the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one ummah and they were a magnificent brotherhood. As salamu alaykum rahmatullahi barakatuh. Bismillah alhamdulillah. ونستعينه ونستغفره به عليه وسلام على سيدنا <laughs> محمد. alright inshallah we're going to continue with our class on the sira before getting into the class we'll talk a little bit about what we covered last week and we'll also um, i'll also ask just a few questions about what we went over last week so according to my notes last week we went over first of all the the important the importance of the sirah and why it is needed we also talked about the sources of the sirah and we also spoke about the situation of the country surrounding arabia uh, around the time of the of the birth of prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and we also spoke a little bit about the situation in arabia at the time that he was uh, just about the time that he was born so just very quickly, just ask a few questions and see where everyone is at, inshallah. Can someone or anyone just quickly say, the, uh, give me one, two, or any reasons for the, the importance of the Sido and why it is necessary for Muslims to understand the life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Any takers? Okay. Uh, the question was, can anyone give the reason, a couple of reasons, or at least one reason, explaining the importance of learning the Sira, the history of the life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam? We mentioned two of them last week and I just wanted to test and see if anyone can, uh, you know, regurgitate what we went over last week. Okay, well, I'll give you one. One of the reasons is to combat the false lies and the the false things people Non-Muslims and the enemies of Islam spread about Prophet Muhammad sallallahu If we know the truth about his Sira we will be able to give a better explanation of some of the quote-unquote controversial things of his life. Uh, for instance, you know his marriage to Aisha at such a at such a young age, the the massacre of Banu Quraida and other things that you know some people may try to use against Prophet Muhammad sallallahu So that was one reason, but there's also another reason, a more important reason than that is actually to understand islam better because the quran is connected the quran is the primary source of the sida and i just gave away um my my um just gave away the answer to the next question but we'll get into that soon the quran is a primary source of the sida and with the the more we understand the sida inshallah the more we understand the quran and we spoke about how there are certain surahs in the quran certain chapters of the quran that are Exactly. The Quran is a guidance to all Muslims, and, there's, and Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi life is also a guidance. in the fact that he uh, he had a, a very rounded life, a more complete life than Prophet Isa, sallam, for example. But at the same time, while his life was very complete, we also have a lot of information about it, unlike Prophet Musa, while his life, Prophet Musa, sallam, his life was complete in the fact that uh, he had... Um, he had a wife and children, and he had he was a leader as well. But we don't have much information about, you know, the details of that. All we have really is what we have in the Quran. The Quran, the Quran doesn't go into a lot of depth about all of it, and we also have what's from the books of the Ahlul Kitab of the people of the book. But all that stuff is not really trustworthy, so we can't go we can't accept everything they say. So that's the reason why Prophet Muhammad's life is more uh, is a better example for us to follow. Unlike Prophet Musa, salam, or Prophet Ibrahim, or Prophet Isa, alayhi salam, alayhi we also spoke about some of the sources of the Sirah, and I already mentioned the Quran is the primary source of the Sirah. We also have the Hadith, the six books of the Hadith, as well as the statements of the companions, as well as the statements of the generation after them, the Tabi'in, and the statements of those after them, the Tabi'i Tabi'in. And we also talked about why. The uh, collection of the Sira does not require as much verification as the collections of the Hadith. And the fact that the Sira is not used, books of the Sira are not used to make rulings in Islam, but the books of the Hadith are. The Hadiths that are used to make rulings are run through a very rigorous process, whereas the Sira, it is history and is important to learn. But reports that may not may not pass the filter of of high quality that a Hadith would would surpass the quality of being included inside of a book of Siddha. And that is because we will not use a Siddha to make judgments. We will use the Hadith that may relate to the Siddha, of course, but not a book of Siddha in and of itself. We also spoke about the, the two nations that were, in existence, the two nations, powerful nations that were in existence at the time of Prophet Muhammad, which were the Romans, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire or the Byzantines, and the Persians, the Sasanian Empire. We spoke how the Persians were Magians or Zoroastrians, they were fire worshippers, and they had a lot of immoral practices, while the Byzantines were Christians, mostly following what we know now see of as uh, Greek Orthodox or Orthodox Christianity is very similar to what we have now as Orthodox Christianity. But while they were close to the truth than the, than the Persians were, they still had fully accepted the Trinity. They believed that God, or Allah, you know, had three manifestations. And they also had a lot of infighting within themselves as well and a lot of uh, controversy and sprinting off within themselves. The Greeks were not really a major power anymore at this time. However, the Greeks were at that time were probably part of the Roman Empire. I don't really remember. But the Greeks were more or less into philosophizing and philosophy and stuff like that. So um, basically, the, those qualities of those three major nations or those influential nations, the Arabs, because of their isolation in the desert, while they had their own corrupt practices, they were isolated from all this influence from these more powerful and more cultivated and more advanced societies because of their isolation. And with that, they, were more, they had a, a more pure existence and they, had, they were more readily acceptable to the message of Islam when it was time for it to come. Unlike these other two cultures, where, whereas Allah knows best. Had Islam came to either the Romans or the Persians, it may have been very difficult for it to have spread in the way that it did coming through the Arabs instead. And Allah knows best. But this shows the wisdom of Allah in choosing the Arabian Peninsula and the Arabs in particular to be the initial vehicle for the spread of Islam. And we also spoke about some of the the practices of the pre-Islamic Arabs. Uh, For instance, we spoke about the fact that they had initially come from the stock of we mentioned that there are three different types of Arabs there were the Arabized Arabs which are those Arabs who descended from the lineage of Prophet Ismail also there were the original Arabs or the pure Arabs which were those who came up from those People, Arabs who descended from the people who were originally originally from Yemen. And then there's the disappeared Arabs, and those Arabs whose, whose civilizations have been wiped out, most likely, mostly by as a punishment from Allah. These include the Ad and the and the, uh, Thamud. Uh, there may have been others, but those two are the ones that we know for sure. So the Arabs at the, at the time of Prophet Muhammad Hassan were only from, of course, the two existing lines the Arabized Arabs and the uh, original pure Arabs. However, even though they initially followed prophet Ibrahim and prophet Ismail's teachings of of monotheism tawhid as time went on the you know that tawhid broke down and eventually they began to worship over many generations began to worship several different deities and the two that the two reasons that we gave for that before were one there was um, one Arab who visited Syria and saw some other people there worshipping idols and so he he brought that same idea back and it spread and the other one which was a gradual process starting with one small bidah one small innovation by one person, or well, one small innovation, probably by many, many people. But as time went on, that innovation multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, and grew until it became outright shoddy over many over many centuries. And showing the dangers of innovation, and also how you know we should be careful about the acts we do around our children. So that's pretty much mostly what we covered from last week. So we're going to go right into the a little bit more about the life of uh, the Arabian lifestyle at that time. One of the primary aspects of the, of the time of the, of the Arabs before Prophet Muhammad Hassan was, and this is the most popular thing, was their dislike and disdain for female children, for women children. And we know the stories of how they used to bury their children, one of the most despicable things that, they, that they've done. They did many despicable things, but that's perhaps one of, one of the worst of them. In fact, Allah mentions it in Suratul, Suratul Taqwir, when Allah mentions how the young unborn female child will be asked why she was killed. And this is in chapter 81, uh, verse Surah Takwir in chapter, verse 8. Allah says, And when the girl who was buried alive is asked, for what reason, what sin was she killed? And this is the practice of the pre-Islamic Arabs to bury their children. It wasn't everyone who did it. Obviously, or the society would have wiped out if everyone buried their, their infant daughters. However, it was widely enough practice where it was accepted and no one really had a problem with it. At least it wasn't enough so for the society to look down upon. And in fact, one of the Sahabas uh, one of the major sahaba's Omar ibn al-khattab before he became muslim he also uh buried one of his daughters and that will come later inshallah if we get to that point but this is one of the main things however the ironic thing about the pre-islamic arabs was despite their their dislike for infant children infant uh female children they held Adult women in high respect. People would go to war over any sort of disrespect to their women folk, to the old, to their women who were full grown adults. I mean, the worst thing you can do is would be to dis- disrespect someone's daughter or wife. I mean, it's all out warfare at that point in time, and just show the the silliness and the hypocrisy that they were under, and the fact that they were willing to, you know, uh, commit infanticide for their own young children, for their own daughters at as babies. But as adults, suddenly they want they're willing to die for them and put their life on the line for them and all that stuff. So shows their own their own problems with them. They also had the. The Many idols, and we mentioned how last week the idols were used as an intermediary. They still believed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a very distorted way, though. They didn't necessarily believe in an afterlife. Uh, the Arabs did not, the, the pre Islamic pagan Arabs did not believe in an afterlife. They believed that this life was all there was to it. And when they died, that was it. But they believed that they could ask for things in this life through their idols. And we mentioned how at the time of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, there were about 360 idols. So the story goes around, you know, stay stored in the Ka'aba. The Ka'aba was still a place of hijrah, a place of um, not hijrah, a place of pilgrimage. Uh, So it's still a place where people will come to, will come to for yearly for the annual pilgrimage, which was started initially by Prophet Ibrahim salam when yearly he would visit his son, Ismail, uh, following the commandments of Allah. And him and his son would worship around the Kaaba that they had built together. But it continued on from there. And while it was initially an act of devotion to Allah, it eventually degraded into an all out, um, you know, pagan festival, pretty much all our pagan festival and where people worship the gods and worship the idols and the Arabs would circumambulate the, the Kaaba still. However, they would do so in order to, they had to wear special clothing like we do now, but it wasn't given away for free. Only the wealthy people could wear this clothing. It was an idea that, you know, their the clothing, the Arabs wore normally in regular, you know, in regular uh, daily wear was not, pure enough to go around the Kaaba, so they had to wear special clothing. But only those who had money to buy the clothing could actually get the clothing to do it. Those who did not have the clothing had to run around there naked. And that was, I mean, they couldn't, it was okay to run around naked, but not okay to run around in clothing from that you wore outside the precincts of the Kaaba. So the regular people who could not afford clothing had to run around the Kaaba with no clothes on. And as women, the most they could do was just, cover, you know, a little piece of cloth to, cl- to cover up the essentials and they would be running around the Kaaba in the same way. So this is one of the a sign of one of the degradations of of uh, Tawhid and the degradation of uh, the religion of Prophet Ibrahim, salam. But the prophets, I mean, excuse me, the uh, Arabs had many different idols. Every clan had its own idol. Every household had his own idol and a clan is a subset of a tribe so a tribe for instance if you're talking about Mecca the tribe would be the Quraysh whereas the clans would be for instance um the the um the Prophet Muhammad's clan was a Hashim clan so you know so it would be a Hashim clan there's also Abdul Muttalib clan when a certain clan would get when a certain family would get big enough it may become a clan and sometimes maybe it become a tribe of its own but every tribe had its own had its own idols and every clan had its, had their own idols as well And the Arabs would, you know, make sacrifices to the idols. They would ask idols for intercession. They would make pilgrimage to the idols we mentioned already. They would devote a portion of their food to these idols and they would make dua to the idols and seek refuge in them from protection from uh, the jinn and other evil things. So they pretty much took their idols. Even though they said that they were just intermediaries between them and Allah, they were really... Treating them the same way where they, that we treat Allah subhanahu wa taala, they treated them in the same way that you know that Muslims treat uh, Allah alone. And well, now I don't want to get too much into talking about other faiths too much, but the Christians do the same thing with Jesus with Jesus. Isa salam. They, you know, many of them say that Isa salam is just intermediary. This is what you know. I, I, I was never Christian, but this is what Christians have told me, that humans can't get to God. So they have to either go through Jesus or go through um, a pope, depending if they're Catholic or not. But even the uh, Protestants still believe they have to go through Jesus. It's really just the same thing that the Arabs are doing. They say they can't get to Allah directly, so they have to go through Isa al Salam or go through idols. It's really the same thing. And they treat Jesus the same way they treat, um, the same way we treat Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. They they may not sacrifice to him, but they do definitely pray to him. They hold celebrations in his name. Uh, when things get in trouble, the first thing that they want to yell out is not Ya yeah, Allah. They yell out, and our the they yell out Jesus Christ or something like that. And that's actually taken as a curse and or a, 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 a curse word in our modern day in our modern language now to call on Isa's Esa, name. Not out of, not out of, um, out of. Devotion or love for Isa Layslam, but because it's taken like blasphemy, because once again they believe Isa is God, which is inc- obviously absolutely incorrect. So the Arabs also believed a lot in superstition. They believed in casting arrows, arrows, which was a, a form of uh, divination or a form of gambling in a way. So they would. If someone wanted to make a decision and they weren't sure what to do, they would grab a bunch of arrows, mark one of the arrows, and randomly pick one out to see what it would say in order for guidance uh, on, on how they should come, how they should deal with a certain situation. Now, there were Jews and Christians living in the Arabian Peninsula and in Mecca and Medina. We know that there are several Jewish tribes living in Medina already, and um, you know, I'm sure most of you have heard the story of Prophet Muhammad's. Uh, the first message of Islam, of, of the Quran to him for, through Angel Jibril. The person he went to after his wife Khadijah was to her cousin, um, Ibn Wadaka, I believe. Uh, Wadaka, her cousin. He went to her cousin who was a Christian, by the way, and who understood, who knew how to read um, the Hebrew alphabet and the Hebrew language. So there were Christians living and Jews living in the midst of the Arabs at that time. They also fully believed in wine and they drank wine. It wasn't anything bad to them. People would get drunk all the time. Uh, two of the Sahabas, at least Hamza, the uncle of Prophet Muhammad, Hassan had a had a pretty you know bad wine problem. Uh, however, this we'll get into it eventually, inshallah. But when Islam came to the Muslims, alcohol drinking alcohol was not immediately wiped out. It was It was gradually, progressively. Uh, made haram by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the Quran through revelations through Prophet Muhammad so it wasn't immediately wiped out however both wine and gambling were both accepted with the pre-Islamic Arabs and they had no problem with doing it at all the Arabs despite all of these bad qualities they had they still had many good qualities. we spoke about some of this last week, how they still believed in honor and upholding one's trust, upholding one's promises. Uh, They still, they still believed in tight family relationships. They still believed in honoring the, honoring the elders and being kind to the children. They believed in generosity. The Hashem clan was responsible for providing food for the pilgrims. And this was an honor for them. And so generosity and sadaqah and giving things to the, helping the poor out was still seen as something good. This just shows the fitrah of mankind, things that everyone, no matter you know what religion or faith they believe in, there's are certain things that Allah puts inside of us so that we know that they're good. And we can see how when people move off that fitrah, things that have always been seen as good or bad throughout history, we see that there's, people still know that they're good or bad and up until recently is only recently that certain things that have been known as good throughout our entire life have been seen of as bad for instance homosexuality throughout history except for a few isolated you know societies homosexuality was always seen as something bad something negative at the very least it was something to be mocked at or something to be hidden and something to be ashamed of but now it is now seen as something as prideful as pride in the few in in many western societies though I still I am still of the belief that throughout the world in general, homosexuality is still seen of seen as a bad thing. It is only in certain Western nations that it's seen of as seen as okay. And remember, you know, most of the world is not the United States or North America, Western Europe and Japan and South Korea. And Australia, you know, the rest of the there's still a whole bunch of world besides those that, that small handful of wealthy countries. And so, outside those that small handful of wealthy Western countries or Westernized nations, because South Korea and Japan are not Western, but they're very much Westernized nations. Outside those small those those few Western nations, though, they may set the agenda for the rest of the world in many respects. You know, the culture still and than uh, the rest of the world, both Muslim and non- and Muslim and non-Muslim still sees homosexuality as being a bad thing. So this just shows how Allah has put certain things within our fitrah of good or bad. And this showing how the Arabs, even before Islam came, they still saw generosity as being a good thing. Also, loyalty, honoring your oaths and repaying your debts. Uh, When someone loaned you money, it was seen as as a good thing to pay your debt back. Or if not, or if you weren't paying a debt back to pay someone else's debt back if they had uh, a heavy debt, a heavy debt burden. So these are just things that were part of the this is just a, a brief overview overview of the Arab society before Islam came. Right. And one last thing of showing how the Arabs had certain good characteristics within them. Even before Islam came, there's a story of a man who came to uh, Mecca to do some business. But when he came there, the person who he was doing business with cheated him and cheated him out, cheated him out, out of uh, whatever he owed him. And he he raised a big ruckus about it. He went to the Kaaba uh, and, started, and ye- started yelling out the the different tribes of, of the Quraysh, the different clans of the Quraysh, and say, And then he he made his he made his case. He told them about well, how this person had cheated him. And from that, the heads of the Quraysh clans and the tribes of, of Mecca they formed an agreement, sort of like a union, to make sure that this this kind of thing never happened again. That anyone who came into Mecca, whether they were Arab or non-Arab, whether they belong to Meccan society, whether they belong to Mecca or not, would be protected from being cheated by other people. And it was reported by Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu many years later that had he been alive or had he been around to take part in that agreement, he would have taken part in it also. So it's showing that even before Islam came, the Arabs had certain qualities <clears throat> that were universally known of as known as good and things that they that even Prophet Muhammad many years later saw, uh, saw as being good things that he would have participated in later on now we're going to go get into a little bit more of the we're going to get a little bit talk a little bit more about the prophet and his role in islam before we get too deep into his life his the day-to-day life that he uh, from his birth going forward all the prophets sent by allah there are two things that they came with aqidah and akhlaq Aqidah, uh, we call we can call it doctrine, creed, or worship. It is our what makes a Muslim a Muslim. This is the five pillars of Islam, the uh, the six pillars of faith, those sort of things that make a Muslim a Muslim. A khlaq, however, is our behavior, our character. And this is still part of what is Muslim, but this is, those, you know, those universally good things that generally all people have, but, you know, sometimes Allah may have to have, may, you know, needed to send or wanted to send a, a prophet to remind us of those things. And so with our uh um another rule thing is legislation like rulings uh that's another good another example of it For qaeda that was always the same from adam alayhi salam to prophet muhammad so, so it's always the same thing uh it may have, certain things may have changed like the number of prayers or how we pray uh certain things that were m- maybe slight differences to for certain circ- circumstances for instance the 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 rules of the Sabbath were made mandatory for look uh, for the um Al yahud for the Jews and especially those of Prophet Musa alayhi salam's time, but by the time Isa came, those things had been abrogated. Allah said those they were no longer necessary. By the time Muslims came they were completely gone by then. So uh but then for the, for that time period, uh for whatever reason the uh the Al yahud had earned this I won't say punishment, but had earned this sort of these sort of rigid regulations of the Sabbath from uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for many reasons, but partially because of their stubbornness. Allah gave these things to them that they had to do. But by the time Salam came, many of them had were were relaxed uh and by Isa and completely taken away by Prophet Muhammad. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So this is just one example of how certain things how that, how certain things may change, certain legislative things may change from prophet to prophet. Uh, for instance, the people of the cave, the, uh, um, Ashab the people of the cave, uh, in their story, they had a dog with them. But as you know, you know, we don't know what the dog was for, but generally, most likely the dog was just a companion. I mean, they weren't tending sheep or anything like that. However, as you know, as Muslims, it's not permissible to have dogs um, as companions like that. You know, if you have a dog, you have to have a reason for it. So this is one another example how things can change from one society or one group of one profits legislation to another. so at that point of time, some of the scholars say that. At that point in time, having dogs was not impermissible. It was not it was not something Allah had made wrong or had, had forbidden us. But by the time Prophet came, Allah did forbid it. This is an example of how certain rulings can say, but the tawheed is always the same. Uh, no prophet said, in order to get to Allah you have to worship me. No Prophet said anything like that, and no Prophet said in order to to get closer to Allah you have to go through this saint or this idol or anything like that. All the prophets the Tawheed was always the same. Even in the Old Testament, even despite its um some of its its irregularities and some of its changes, you can still see these the strain of Tawheed going through them just in the Ten Commandments. And the first one is thou shalt have no gods before me. And I don't want to go too much into that, but we all know what that means, and it means you know essentially "La ilaha illallah." There's no no deity worthy of worship except Allah. It's the same essential meaning, and the same thing has gone on and on and on from Adam salam all the way down to Prophet Muhammad. Tawhid has always been the same, and that's what we were created for. Allah says He has not created the jinn and mankind except to except to worship Him, and anything outside of worshiping Him, any sort of worship that does not go directly to Allah, is misguidance and Ultimately shook, and so that's an example of how all the prophets had the same message. But the legislation may have changed over the time. You know, all the prophets taught about you know if you do good, if a you do, if your you know good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you go to heaven or Jannah. If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, then Jannah you go to hell. All prophets taught the same thing. Uh, there are some, I think many Jews now don't believe in in hell per se, uh, but that's just one more. Evidence of them as guidance, and different Christian sects have different ideas of what heaven and hell is. Uh, some Christian sects say that uh, their idea of hell is like, um, you die, you are just dead. There's no coming back. But those who are good, you know, they're raised back into the kingdom of God and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not going to get into an it because they have so many different. I mean, you can there's like there are 200 denominations of Christianity in America alone. So we can we can talk all day about the different things they believe. That's just one thing showing you how you know they've gone astray with that stuff. So to love Allah and His Messenger means to obey and follow everything that Allah and His Messenger have given us. So in the Quran, when you hear, whenever Allah says the word "Ya Ayuhaladina amanu, O you who believe, this means that a commandment is coming right after, and so we have to do what Allah, whatever Allah is telling us to do, right after that. And obeying the obeying the Prophet is the same thing as obeying Allah. And disobeying the Prophet is the same thing as disobeying Allah. So for those people who do not follow the teachings of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, those groups of people, are even if you have a Jew or a Christian who does, you know, you say you have a Christian who says, I don't believe in the Trinity. You know, I just worship God. But I follow the teaching of Isa alayhi salam. I follow the teaching of Jesus. I just believe in God, but I don't really believe Prophet Muhammad is a, was a prophet. I don't really believe the Quran is the word of God. Even though they may have the aspect of worshiping Allah alone correctly, because they are disobeying Prophet Muhammad not following him, they have still ultimately disobeyed Allah. So, it's the same thing as um, for instance, during the time of the British colonization of the United States, uh, before it became the United States, you had the king of England, or the king of England, he was the ruler of the United States and the entire British world, but he could not rule it all himself. He had governors who ruled the different colonies in the United States, and so the governor who ruled certain colony or who governed certain colonies in the United States or what would become the United States, if someone disobeyed the governor, they were ultimately disobeying the king. So if someone fought, you know, you know, led a revolution against the governor of that state, they're basically revolting against the king and would still be killed or hanged or imprisoned or whatever. So it's the same thing. The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and all the prophets were representatives of Allah. They came to give the message of Islam to whatever people they were sent to. And so by disobeying the Prophet, you're also disobeying Allah, even if someone says, but I still believe in Allah. Because essentially, how can someone say they believe in Allah and not know how to worship him? And how otherwise you're going to make up your own worship? If you don't follow uh, a prophet and you've got to follow the most recent one, you know, you know, we can't follow the rules of George Bush now that Obama is president. You can't follow the, the rules of Isa Islam now that Prophet Muhammad is the last prophet. So they can't say wa rahmatullah, they can't say that, you know, I'm going to make up my own thing either. If they say that, then once again they are this is pure misguidance. If they say I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to worship God as I see fit, then either A, they believe they're a prophet. Would well, be they believe that they have some knowledge of a law that nobody else has, which basically means that's calling call themselves a prophet. Or, you know, they just make up their own stuff. You know, they're following their own heart. In which case, we can all do that. If that's the, if that's the case, if that's the truth, then all, all of us can say that, well, we're going to all follow our own rules and make up our own stuff, which will lead to mass misguidance of everyone. That's why we have to follow the current prophet. And the last prophet to mankind is, of course, Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, And since his coming, there have been no other Major uh, monotheistic religion to come to come up since then fourteen hundred years so far and no other person no other individual while there have been many people who claim to be prophets none of them have done anything even close to what Islam is I mean whether you take the or what they really came up with people who claim to be prophets all they were doing was just remodeling or remaking you know current pr- religious practices whether it was the the Mormons in the United States, while they may claim that, I forgot the guy's name, the founder of Mormonism, while they may claim that he was a prophet, uh can't remember his name for the life of me while well, they may claim that he was a prophet a prophet or whatever it's just remodel christianity it's you know they may they have different rules and stuff like that but it's it's still christianity it's just a different version of they still believe in jesus they just, you know they don't believe in the trinity per se but they believe jesus is the son of god and if you know they still believe in the bible They just believe that the book of Mormon is, an, is the next book or whatever so you know it's just repurposed christianity or if you take the nation of islam or i don't like to call it that but we know of his nation of islam that will that um that uh the deviant belief system that was that was set up by the by uh Elijah Poole, also known as Elijah Muhammad in the United States and which had many famous followers including at one point Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali you know they also set up a deviant system saying that Elijah Muhammad was a prophet of Allah and that was essentially repurposed Christianity and Islam. You know, it was just the same thing, you know, something that was already in existence, they just changed it around to fit whatever they want to believe at that time. You take the Baha'i Faith, which is which started out uh, I'm thinking India, but I'm not hundred percent sure. The Baha'i the Baha'i Faith, which is some sort of universal everybody's right type of thing, is the same thing. When they it was repurposed Islam and a lot of the stuff is the same thing. you uh, take the Ahmadiyya cult or ah- Ahmadiyya sect, Qadiyanis, whatever you want to call them. Repurposed Islam. So all these other things. There's been no strong religious movement since Prophet Muhammad Hassan, which is pure you know, more evidence that, you know, it's, that he is the final prophet. All these other guys who come along, they start little movements, they do a little bit here and there, and they may misguide some people, but they either you know, flicker out and die, like the nation of Islam is almost dead, or they they stall and they can't go, but so much further, for instance, the Cardianis and, um, or the Ahmadiyyas, they, you know, they're not, they can't really go, but so much further than where they've gone so far, or they blend into the society around them. For instance, the Mormons, you know, while they still are slightly different, they pretty much blended into the American fabric and are not much different than um, regular American Christians to the point where they almost had a president last, they almost had a president earlier this year. So that's just a, a, you know giving more reasons why, um, kind of reinforcing the you know this, the previous my previous statement that under that following Prophet Muhammad and knowing his life is an essential part of being um, a practicing Muslim. So we spoke about how the clans of Prophet, how, the, how the clans of the Meccans were large families within the overall tribe of the Quraysh. The tribe was of the Quraysh was the overall tribe, and they were the Quraysh. Made their money through two different things, mostly commerce. They were businessmen, entrepreneurs, and stuff like that, and also through the hajj. When people would come to the hajj and spend a lot of money there, you know, you know, they, that's how the the Kadesh made their money. But the, their primary source of income was through commerce. And what they would do was that when the weather was warm in in the north, they would bring goods from the north to the south. Uh, that was Yemen. So the north would be Syria, and the south would be Yemen. And the Meccans, the Quraysh especially, they acted as intermediaries between these two places. They would bring food, uh, goods from one area and be the middlemen to the other area. So when it was cold in Yemen, they would bring food from Syria or bring goods from Syria down to Yemen and make money that way. And when the seasons changed and now it's cold in Syria and warm in Yemen, they would do the same thing the other way around, bringing goods from Yemen up to Syria. So the Quraysh acted as middlemen, uh, as entrepreneurs. That's how they had these large caravans going back and forth. And that's how they primarily made their money. So they are very good entrepreneurs and very well-established businessmen. And this is something that even Prophet Muhammad Hassan, he was also an entrepreneur as well, a businessman, so to speak. We'll get into that later on, inshallah. But it's just, this is how they made their money. Allah spoke about this in Surah Tulkareish. when Allah says, Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Li lafi Kodesh. E lafi him rehla ta shita. He was safe. Faliya abu rabba ha than bait. Allah the yata amahum ming ju'il wa amana hum ming Allah says, Lee lafi Kodesh. For the security of the Kodesh. Allah is reminding the Kodesh of the security that He gave them. The Kodesh had. You know, they had this ability to go back and forth, carry their caravans back and forth where nobody else could really do that but them. And they could do this without really having to worry about being attacked or or ambushed by almost any tribe. They had, you know, a lot. This is an honor, an honor and a protection that Allah gave them. And Allah is reminding reminding them of this. And then Allah reminds them how they were able to travel from, carry the caravans back and forth in the winter and the summer. When he says, For their security of the caravans, shita'i was safe. Shita'i is winter and safe is summer. For the, their security of the caravans in the winter and the summer. And then Allah commands them to worship the the Lord of the of the house, which is the Kaaba. <speaking in Hebrew> Allāh is telling them worship the the Lord of the Kaaba and not the Kaaba itself or these idols within the Kaaba. Worship the Lord of the Kaaba. Worship Allāh Himself. Allāhiyātumuhum min wa min It reminded them to worship the Lord of the Kaaba, the one who has fed them against hunger or protected them from hunger and made them safe from fear. So the Quraysh were able to travel back and forth between Syria and Yemen without having to worry about hunger, without having to worry about fear. So while everybody else, while everybody else, but many other people in the Arabian Peninsula, the Bedouins and all these other tribes had to worry about famine and droughts and all the problems that can come up with desert lifestyle where they had to worry about being overrun or raided or attacked by different uh, warring tribes the Quraysh were almost completely free of that fear you know they could travel all over the Arabian Peninsula doing business you know people in their in their city in the Mecca had compared to other other um, cities at the time in the, in the Arabian Peninsula they enjoyed a lot of freedom and a lot of you know prosperity compared to everyone else. So a large reminder that Allah is has given you all this, a large reminder that they've given you all this, giving you this honor, giving you security, giving you business and hunger. I mean, sorry, giving you business and freedom from hunger and freedom from fear. So worship your Lord and show remembrance. So just an example how the Quraysh were well, you know, well-known and well-respected and very successful businessmen as well. Now, Prophet Muhammad Sassan was his ancestry we mentioned goes all the way back to prophet ibrahim salam. you know ibrahim alaihissalam and uh well i kind of want to go into the story of the birth of ismail salam, but it's going to take the rest of the class and i don't want to spend too much time on that but we may go over it next time inshallah but it's whatever the class wants. For now however however we know that Ismail salam, was the son of Prophet Ibrahim and Hajar and so Prophet Ismail salam, was was combination of a Babylonian Ibrahim and a Coptic Egyptian his mother Hajar and but he later on married um a Bedouin you know um, uh, from from the uh, most likely pure Arab from Yemen so he met, and so that's how the his stock came through and his family his descendants came through from there and Proper was able to and the other you know, scholars since then have been able to trace his lineage back to prop back to Prophet Ismail. And the Arabs were very good with their lineage anyway. They uh, Abu Bakr who was an example. The Arabs were very good with with remembering their lineage and told you family ties were very, very strong and very important. So they had a good, strong connection to their lineage, and they were very good at remembering and reciting back generation after generation after generation, the father this or the son of that, the father this and the son of that, on and on and on, going all the way back as far as they could. As far as they could. And it's just part of their, first of all, the fact that they had, you know, part of their nature of mem- of being so poetic, they had very strong memories. You know, the Arabs the had very good memories, and also the combination of that with the ties to their, family lineage, they were able to combine all these two these two things together to be very well versed in their lineage and Abu Bakr was just was just one example. I'm gonna go over just I'm not gonna go through all of the um all of the line from Prophet Ibrahim alayhi all the way down to Prophet Muhammad ASL, but we're gonna start at Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib was the grandfather of Prophet ASL, and His one of his son, his youngest son was Abdullah. And there's a famous story about how Abdullah was almost sacrificed. And, you know, we can go into the next time. We don't have much time right now. So I want to save some time for Q&A. But Abdullah was a youngest son of Prophet. I'm sorry, of Abdul Muttalib. And he had, others, he had other sons. Another one of them was Abu Talib, who was uncle of Prophet Muhammad, Hassam, as well as Hamza, who was another uncle. Abbas was another uncle. So he has several sons before Abdullah, but Abdullah was the youngest. Abdullah wound up being the father of Prophet Muhammad, Hassam, as we all know. He married a woman named Amina bint Wahab. He married a woman named Amina bint Wahab, and her family was from Medina. So her. Her lineage was from Medina, or uh, at that time is known as Yathrib. So Prophet Muhammad, Hassan, uh laid many years later when he would make his hijrah or his migration to Medina, he felt more comfortable going there because he had some family lineage in Medina. And so it's just an example of you know how that family ties once again plays plays a role there. Now we all know that if well, we do know now, inshallah, that Abdullah died before Prophet Muhammad Hassan was born he died when his when his mother Amina was still pregnant with him on a trip he was once again also a um, a merchant and he died while, died while on a, on a business trip and uh I believe going to medina he died while on a on a business trip and then Amina wound up giving birth to Prophet Muhammad Hassan without you know a father and the the custom of the Arabs back then was to wa the custom of the Arabs back then was to send their children before uh, before they, when they got when they're very very young, send them with the Bedouins or the the nomads, the Bedouins out into the desert for the first couple of years of life. The reason was that they had the idea that uh, the climate in the big cities like Mecca and uh, the city weren't but so big back then, but the climate within the established cities was just too much pollution, and it wasn't good for young for for young lungs. Also, they wanted them, they wanted their children to get the pure Arab, Arabic speech with Mecca being a cosmopolitan city with so many people coming in from all over, the, all over the Arabian Peninsula. There are a lot of different languages and, you know, they're businessmen anyway. And things are going back and forth. They wanted the children to get their, their initial upbringing. They wanted to be out in the wilderness with the Bedouins, which is pure Arabic speech. And there's a way of, you know, they're very proud of the language. I think We've been over this before. The Arabs are very proud of their language. It could be very, very poetic and it can be manipulated to do so all sorts of, create all sorts of beautiful poetry. While the Quran supersedes all of that, it was still had they they still loved their language, and Arab poetry was a very popular thing back then, and it still is now, but it's very popular and very important to the arabs and so they wanted the children initially in the beginning to get the first couple of years of speech out in the wilderness with the Bedouins who were considered pure Arabs and they spoke the pure that pure language, so they would send them out to be nursed or to be nursed for the first two years with uh Bedouin women. But, you know, there was an unspoken agreement between the Bedouins and the city folk that if we take your child to nurse him for two years or to raise him for two years, you're supposed to pay for that. It wasn't it was supposed to be done as it was one of those unspoken agreements. Basically, they weren't. Like, they didn't write up contracts and stuff like that. Okay, this is what we want for this many years. And if, you know, if you default, this was going to happen. They didn't do all that kind of stuff. It was like an unspoken agreement that if this person is going to raise a child for two years, you're going to help him out. I mean, this it was just known that that would happen. So the family would send them gifts. And so the the women from the Bedouin women who would take children, they expected to, you know, get some gifts from the father or from the father's family. And so the fact that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's father was dead didn't work in his favor. And, you know, when it came time for his mother, Amina, to find a better woman to take him, there weren't too many takers. Nobody really wanted him because they knew his father was dead. And so what chance, you know, they'll just be raising a child and not really getting much from it. Because once again, they expected some sort of compensation, at least in the form of gifts, even though it wasn't. It was like one of those unspoken rules, an unspoken custom. Eventually, however, one woman did take did, did take did take him in. I think it was Halima Saadia. And she was she had somehow somehow or another missed out on all of the other babies who did have fathers. And so she didn't want to go back to her family with no child at all. And so the last her last option that was left was Prophet Muhammad Hassan, um or the son, this this little orphan boy uh, who didn't have a father. And because she didn't want to go back home empty handed, she already had a child, by the way. And that's why that's kind of it's not like the women could really choose when to go out there when they had a child. And when they were nursing, that's the best time to go out and get another child, obviously, because they're nursing at that time. So it's not like they can just, you know, well, we'll come back next year. It doesn't quite work that way. They're going to do it when they have a child avail- when They had that child of their own. And so. They have the opportunity. Forgive me for saying they have opportunity. They have an extra breast for another child, and so they can do that at that time. So she had a ch- she had just had a child who was nursing, so she wanted to get, you know bring home another child, but she didn't want to come back home empty-handed. Come back to her family empty-handed. So, as a last resort, she went on ahead and accepted to she agreed to accept Prophet Muhammad Wasallam as her you know as as uh, her fourth child to nurse him, and so she took him back to her home. And as the story goes. Immediately, Allah began to send her blessings. Before she was once again from Bedouin family, they were poor. They weren't doing. They weren't very well off. They lived off of their animals, and before then, the animals were nearly dead from drought. They couldn't really. They weren't really producing that much milk, neither the animals or or Halima herself. But Allah blessed all these things, and her animals began to just pour forth milk and pour forth uh, abund- abundant food for the family, and. As her child and Prophet grew grew up for the first couple of years of, of his life, they grew up together, but as she had them you know her fortunes changed when you know when she took took this child in, her fortunes immediately changed, all sorts of good things began to happen to her. you know the land that they were in became fertile became became fertile um she began to produce a lot of milk as well, and just the whole life changed much for, for the better so uh, the custom was generally the Bedouin women would only take a um a city child like Prophet Muhammad was born in Mecca, they only take a city child for two years because her fortunes had turned around so much. She went when the two years were up. She talked to Amina and asked her to keep him for another two years. So actually, Prophet Muhammad Hassan wound up staying with Halima Sadia for the first four years of his life, and so she he stayed with her for four years. But eventually, after four years, she had to send him back to Amina, and that begins the prophet's life in Mecca as a as a young boy. And we have about ten more minutes, so I'm going to stop there. Now we have gone now. You before I go, I know you probably may have heard many, many different stories about the Prophet, about the birth of Prophet Muhammad, Hassan, and I deliberately did not go too deep into that. Because there's a whole lot of things I said about castles shaking and earthquakes in the east and lights in the sky. And there's no way to verify these things. I've read all these stories also, but much of them cannot be verified, and so while as I mentioned the 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 requirements for the CEdar is as a, at a lower standard I still don't want to you know spread fairy tales you know I don't want to spread stuff that's not necessarily true, so I'd rather you know talk about things that you know i I have pretty good confidence you know have happened or there's enough you know there's enough evidence that they've happened, so all these things about you know she saw light emanating from her uterus when he was born, and all these I'm not going to really mention those things I just mentioned it, I guess, but I'm not going to really get into that stuff, you know, unless there's a little bit more stronger evidence in that. and how I mean, come on, she Amina died. When Prophet Hassan, a couple of years after when he was six years old. So there's no one there to record this information. So these things are, and Allah knows best, maybe they're true, but most likely these are things that are fabricated after he came, after he was born. And Allah knows best about all this. But the lineage of Prophet Muhammad Hassan, we have pretty good information on that. You know, the fact that he was raised by Halim al there's, there's the hadiths and everything to confirm all that. But these other things, you know, castle shaking and, you know, thrones falling off their pulpits and all this other stuff I'm not going to really get into that stuff because there's not enough evidence that they are true and so you know you can always look them up you know but you know I'm not going to really get into those things because once again there's not enough evidence for it and I'd rather deal with those things that you know we have a lot more uh, information about and Allah knows best now we have about seven more minutes inshallah if anyone has any question about what we've gone through so far or anything in the um, in the prophecy going forward, now is the time to ask them. So, we're opening the floor up for questions, if anyone has any. I don't see any questions. Why, Yakum? Why, Yakum? As well, I don't. Okay. Well. Uh, don't see too many questions, so we're just gonna speak a little bit more about. uh, We'll go a little bit further in Prophet Muhammad's life. If anyone has a question, you can go ahead and just type it in, and I'll stop and answer the question as we go along. As you know, his um, he went back to his mother Amina at the age of four, and then she died about two years later when he was about six years old and then his grandfather Abdul Muttalib if I'm yes Abdul Muttalib took him in and Abdul Muttalib died 2 years after that and they went on to be raised by his uncle Abu Talib from that point on Abu Talib was of course the son of Abdul Muttalib and the brother of his father Abdullah and Hamza and Abbas and also Abu Lahab as well all of uh uncles of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. and you know he, someone may some people may wonder why did Allah put uh, so much tragedy in such a young boy's life. He lost his he lost his father before he was born. He lost his mother. I mean, he was only a, a young child of four years old. He lost his grandfather, who raised him from that point on at six. And now he's raised by his uncle. He does, his uncle treated him like a treated him like his own son. You know, why did Allah put him through so many things? And some people say, some scholars say that the reason why this happened is Abu Jal was not from Banu Hashim. He was from Ah. Uh, Man, I can't remember the name. But it begins with the M. Um I can't remember. No, he wasn't from Banu Hash. He was a Quraysh, but he was not from Banu Hash. And by the way, Abu Jal's name was not his real name is not Abu Jal. Abu Jahl means father of ignorance, and nobody's gonna name the child father of ignorance. <laughs> so his ex name was Ab um Aqil. His name is Aqil, but Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi nicknamed him uh, uh Abu Jahl. Because of his his aggression against against the Muslims and how evil he was, so Sallallahu Alaihi named him Abu Jahl, and from that point on, he's been called Abu Jahl ever since then. But his real name was not Abu Jahl. But no, he was not from the could the um the uh, Hashemites. He was from. Give me a sec. I have it in a second. It, it begins. I can't think of it right now. But he was from another. He was from another tribe. He was not a a direct relative. relative to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi and that's why we have the um. I don't want to get into that one. But we're we'll it I have the, I have it for you in just a second. Mm. Machzum, yes, from Banu Machzum. I knew it began with the M. I just couldn't remember at the time. It's from the Banu Machzum clan, which was still a Quraysh clan, but not one of the um, not from the Hashemite clan. Uh, the The second in command of the infidels of the pagans were the say infidel for that's anyway. The second in command of the pagans was. Abu Sufyan. He also was not from the Hashem clan. He was from a rival clan. And these things will start coming along as you go down further into the Sido. He's from a rival clan of the Hashemites called the um, called the um, Umayyad clan. He was from the Umayyad clan. And the Umayyad clan, you know, Abu Sufyan was the head of that clan. He took over the leadership of the Quraysh uh, after the death of Abu Jahl. Uh, he took over the leadership of the, of the Quraysh. And one of the reasons why Abu Sufyan was such a Strong opponent, you know he led he led uh, several battles against Prophet Muhammad. The reason why he was such a strong opponent was uh, that that family dynamic was in there. The Hashim the Hashim clan was and was rivals against the against the Umayyad clan, which was a clan of not just Abu Sufyan but also one of Prophet Muhammad's closest companions, Uthman ibn Athan. And unfortunately, as uh, we probably won't cover it in this class because it's not really part of the life of Muhammad. It came out afterwards, but. That stuff comes to play. It got out again, many, many years later, after the death the death of Prophet Muhammad Sassam, during the Fitna that eventually led to the splitting off of the Sunni and the Shiites. A lot of that came from that same rivalry between the Hashim the Hashim clan and the Umayyad clan. The uh, Hashim clan, you know, Ali, 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 Ali was of course a relative of Muhammad SAW, and was from the Hashim clan, whereas uh, Muawiyah. Who was Ali's rival was the son of Abu Sufyan, and they were both from the Umayyad clan. And these things play off along later on down the road, many, many, many years later, when Ali, who's not who at the point that we're talking about right now, he's not even born yet. You know, we're talking about Prophet still still being a baby. Ali is not even born yet. Talking about decades from that point of time. Many years later, when Ali is an old man. You know, in his in his 50s or 60s, you know, this thing is still playing out. But now it's just, now it's not Muslims against pagans, it's Muslims against Muslims, unfortunately. And that led to the splitting of, um that ultimately eventually led to the split off between the um Shiites and the Sunnis. But, you know, it's a little more deeper than that, but we can't really get to believe it. It's a long, long story before it gets to that point. But just letting you know that that rivalry between clans plays out much further than just uh, Abu Sufyan and Abu Jal and all. Uh, at this time Abu Jal also um, They say was from The Banu Maqzum tribe A uh, clan They weren't really A major clan If I remember correctly Not like the Hashims Or the Or the Umayyah. They weren't a, a major clan But they had enough authority Abu Jal was just Authoritative in himself He was a very intelligent person uh, His name was Aqil by the way He was a very intelligent person Very influential He was like Omar um, Omar ibn al-Khattab Even though Omar ibn al-Khattab Also came from A small A small clan Within the Meccan clan he had a, a very forceful personality where he could kind of get his way, you know, just with the force of his personality. And Abu Jahl was the same way. He was able to really just move people along by degrading them, or or denigrating them, or talking about them, and just from his personality was able to, he was able to get certain things done. And that may Allah knows best. Maybe that was part of his his uh, antagonism against Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu was just the fact that maybe he just didn't want, didn't want to share the spotlight. Allah knows best. But in the end, Abu Jahl was uh was killed in the Battle of Badr, which will come several months from now, inshallah. Uh, I, want, I was I want to talk about real quick the reason why what some scholars say is the reason why so many of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu close relatives died at such a young age. Uh some scholars say this was so that when he did become the Prophet, when he did receive the mess the message of Islam and began to preach the preach the message of Islam people couldn't use it against him that he was influenced by his parents. You know, many, most of the prophets pretty much had some influence from their parents. I mean, Prophet Isa al look who his mother was. I mean, who can say that he wasn't influenced by his parent, by his mother? Um, if you look at Musa al-Islam, well, his mother was a believer and also his foster mother, the one who raised him, who was the the wife of Fir'aun. You know, she was a believer. You know, we, we can go on... Um, there's several other prophets who were highly influenced by their mother or by their father. Prophet Ismail, for instance, his mother and his father both believe his father was a prophet. You know, so we, the reason, one of the reasons that scholars say that uh, Allah took away Prophet Muhammad Salim's parents and, and, and grandfather and grandfather at such a young age was so that no one could say that he had been influenced by his parents. That it wasn't just his parents trying to, you know, make their son out to be something, you know something really great, trying to make the turn us into a leader or something like that, and also it all in another aspect that it made Prophet Muhammad more sensitive to the needs of the the weak the weaker part of society the orphans for instance uh orphans Allah has sent us many many directions in the Quran about how to how to, how we should treat the orphans so i can name ranuf so fajr tufajir al maun um al duha so many instances where allah commands us to be kind to the orphans and treat them well and take care of them you know this is all and Prophet Muhammad also in his in his uh, speech and everything and his commandments and his talk always had a sensitivity towards the orphans and not taking care of those people who are weaker, who are weaker in society. And there's certain classes of people who will always be weaker. Uh, widows were, were weaker. Slaves were weaker. We don't really have slaves now, but still up until you know, just a few hundred years ago, slavery was common throughout most of the world. So, you know, treating slaves, also treating captives and you can go whether it's made me prisoners or not. And a lot of those best, you know, but you know, in our current society, we do know that Islam is very much widespread in the prison system. People go to jail, and unfortunately, it takes a tragedy for them to find Islam, but they do find Islam often in prison. But it is another tragedy that the, the Muslim community tends to neglect them. And I know that sometimes with the government bureaucracy, it's, very, it's hard to really do but so much for them. But there is, you know, Islam is, you know, certain Certain prison communities have very strong elements of Islam in them, and where Islam is very, very strong within them. Uh, I was raised in New York, and I can I can tell you that the Muslim community in the prisons in New York City, or in um, in the jail system in New York City, for instance, in Rikers Island, the Muslims have a very strong influence there. And it isn't. An, and I living in Birmingham, I saw the complete opposite, where there were Muslims in prison, but because the Muslim community was was so f- far away from where the prisons were because the prisons would be, you know, out in the boondocks, you know, it just was too difficult to really provide them with the services that they needed. So just, in you know, a lot knows best if they can be counted as, as captive, so to speak, but in many ways they do have some of the same, you know, they do have some of the same restrictions that slaves or captives have though. So, and a lot knows best about how we treat them. But the point is just that we are commanded to treat, those who are weaker, the weaker part of society, in a in a in a in a in a kind and courteous way, and help them any way we can, including those who are hungry, those who are poor and needy, you know, widows, orphans, all these different classes of people who can sometimes be ground under the boot of of society. You know, we are commanded to take care of them and help them out as much as we can. Inshallah. So this is one just one thing. How these tragedies that happened early in his life made him. May Prophet Muhammad uh kind towards these groups of people later on. And sister asks, how is Prophet Muhammad's nature as a child?" We don't have much direct information from him, from him about him as a child. We do have the story when he was with uh, still being raised by Halima Asadiya, when he was still being uh, raised by her. There's a story of the angel coming down. And opening his chest, he was probably Muhammad as a child was playing with his foster brother, the other, you know, Halima's, you know, um, biological son. Uh, Angel came and opened his Muhammad Sajjad's chest and cleaned out, you know, washed his chest and cleaned out the the um, uh, what they say is a a small black spot that all all children of Adam have. He took this black spot out of his heart and then sealed his heart, sealed his chest back up. And when the his foster brother saw this, he went. Running inside to his mother, like, "Oh my mom, mom! You won't believe what just happened!" And you know that kind of scared them. Scared Halima at first, and that prompted her to go ahead and take Prophet hassan son back to his mother. After a while, and that prompted her to, her to do that. But according to some some reports, however, later on, as a child, as he got older, um, I don't know how old he was at this time, but there is a story how he was with a. This is when he was back in Mecca, and most likely he was probably preteens maybe somewhere between the age of 10 and 14 years old he was hanging around other other kids and there was um there was um a a wedding banquet or a festival that's about to happen and everybody made plans to go all of his friends made plans to go then have fun and everything and he also as a kid he wanted to go as well but when it came time to go he fell asleep and he fell asleep and slept through the entire festival and this is an example of Allah protecting him from being um from from being exposed to these sort of things and these sort of things at a, at a young age. So even this small bit of fitna, he was protected from even as a child. And there's another, he also, as a child, he also mentioned, Prabhupada also mentioned that he was a shepherd for a short time as a child as well. And all of the messengers of Allah were shepherds as well. So the 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 sheep, as compared to the camels, sheep are generally... Very meek and mild animals, and they're very, very weak. I mean, a dog can kill a sh- can kill a sheep, and so the 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 sheep, you know, sheep don't have much to protect themselves. You know, they're fluffy, all they have is wool. You know, they're not like goats; they don't even have horns. At least goats have horns to kind of protect themselves. Sheep's are a little a little on the stupid side, and they're just big, fluffy, and tasty. So they're pretty much. Open season for any wild animal. So, a shepherd, his main goal is is to protect those sheep from wolves, from rival shepherds, from their own stupidity, from from a sheep walking off a cliff or getting stuck in a ravine or something like that. You know. Okay, inshallah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna close off right right here, inshallah. But just as an example, as a child, they had to be a shepherd. This is more training for him when he got older, inshallah. Of helping out humans of, of, of saving humans and protecting us as well when we you know as humans we can also do things that are self destructive but just it's just uh this is the same uh thing where programosum had to protect you know people from our own dangers from our own self destructive nature Is the same way uh protecting the sheep was a way of protecting him protecting uh him learning how to protect humans and our own in our own uh, endeavor to hurt ourselves, so protect, protecting us from being eaten by wolves, so to speak, or from falling off cliffs and getting stuck in ravines, doing the same thing for us. So all the prophets, all the messengers had the same responsibility. They were all shepherds, and it was a, a form of training for them, inshallah. Okay, and okay, so that was that's pretty much most of his his young life. There's one one more story, and we can, we can do it the next time, inshallah. Uh, we'll talk about. So we're gonna go into his young life, his life as a young man next, inshallah, and then from that point on, we we'll, we will be mostly talking about his his prophethood and the trials he went through as a prophet. So the, as a, as a, as a prophet of Allah, salam. So we're not going. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in his childhood. Like I said, a lot of these stories are fabricated. The ones I mentioned, there's you know, there's much more strength in the ones that I mentioned. But you know, we're gonna to try to stay away from a lot of the the, the un unverified things. If there are no more questions, inshallah, we, we will close this off. If there are any more questions, we will give you a few more minutes if you have any other questions, inshallah. Wa Okay. All right, the sister asked, what books. Uh, should you study the um, currently one of the best books in Sira is Uh is tra it was originally written in Arabic but it's been translated into English. It's very 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 detailed. So you gotta have some patience. You want to get through that that book because <laughs> I just breeze through the the um the prophets. Why uh, Yakum I just breathe through the breeze through the prophets lineage, but. Martum goes deep into that stuff, so it is very very detailed, but you know it is a good book and it has it focuses more on the more authentic authentic uh stories of prophet some there are other books you can read for instance um the there's a book printed by Darul salaam called the history of islam uh you can get the first volume deals more with the life of or something. so you don't want to go into the the two volumes that come after that are after his death and you know go to the different the different caliphates that came after him the first volume is pretty good it's very condensed so it gets it breezes through the history very quickly but it's it's still pretty good though and I, I learned a lot from that one and you know while it's not really a book it is widely available uh, online you know whatever people may say about him uh, Anwal Aulaki's uh, book um uh sessions on Prophet on the Meccan period is a very good very good resource. You know, you may have to overlook some of the you know some of the uh, extremities of, of our brother, but you know, he, some of the things he said, you know, you could see you could you see where his frustration with the current political system, where he got upset with it, and he may have said some things they probably shouldn't have said. But for the most part though the his his series on the prophets or was very good. So especially the, the the Meccan period, you know they're both pretty, they're both good, but the Medina period has a lot more there's a lot more fighting in it in it in the Medina period. And so, yeah, I'll leave that up to you if you want to how you know whatever your thoughts are on that. But just listening to it to the Meccan period is actually very good. You know, I, it's it's pretty good and it's available online now, so it's available anywhere you just type in it, you'll find it um, all over the place. Um, other books you can read. Uh the Quran in and of itself is actually a, even though it's is broken up, it's not a chronological way. The Quran in and of itself has gives a lot of information about the life of Prophet. Muhammad For instance, uh even the last the last Jews, the surahs in the last Jews, I mentioned some of them that that were talked about his life, Surah Duha Suratul uh Inshara, Suratul um can't think of any right now. But those two, Layl Suratul, um not so tautic. But there are a lot of them that really deal with, a lot a lot with his life, um, as you know, before he before he actually um, made the hijrah to to Medina, so there are a lot of things even in the Quran. If you read the, the you gotta read the Tafsir, of course. And our first Tafsir I would recommend would be Ibn Kathir's Tafsir. From that point on, you can also try Jalalain, but Jalalain is his Kathir is very condensed. Uh, his Jalalain is two people. Their their Tafsir is very condensed, but it's still pretty good. But the Quran of the Tafsir is also pretty good. Um, there is also a, a very very detailed commentary on the Quran. Which goes into a lot of these stories of Prophet as it relates to the Quran. But um al Quran, I can't remember the um the author's name right now, but al Quran is also people bootleg these books and they're available online. But it's a you know the it really goes into detail and it gives a lot of information about the Prophet's life, so um, uh, for now those ones that I can think of for now that are available in English. Um in Arabic there's, there's a whole lot more, but I'm assuming everyone in here speaks English. Uh so I'm gonna have to not mention those that are in Arabic. But if you do happen to speak Arabic, then um Al Bidayah wa Nihaya by Ibn Kathir is a good one to go for. But you know, I don't think it's the whole uh I don't think it's been translated the whole series of Al down when they have been translated in English as yet. But just bits and pieces of it. So that's why I would say all the, all the books to read. First one, I would suggest to Arahik al-Makhtum and then History of Islam um, published by Darul Salam. Um, I will try and get you a link to it if I can if I can find it. If not, I'll get it for you next week, inshallah. Any other questions? Any more? Okay. All right. Well, Jazakum Al Khaidan, my dear students, thank you for coming out and participating again. Alhamdulillah. I'm glad to see people here. wa Waalik Musan Wa Amin anta. And you know seeing people are coming out and and want to and want to hear hear these uh these talks keep me motivated. And even if you don't come out, I'll still come. So but inshallah, I'm glad you are coming. I thank you all for being patient with me. And I know I'm not the best speaker in the world. But Alhamdulillah, I do the best I can. And I'm glad, uh, Alhamdulillah, for the patience of the video and the audio. And if you have any questions, once again, you can always uh, just shoot me an email. I don't do Facebook, so I don't have a Facebook page to give you. So you just do email. Uh, so you can shoot me an email there if necessary. Inshallah. Wa'ayakum. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Subhanu alaykum wa rabbi, rabbin ala izati yasifun. Wa salamun ala al Wa rabbil alameen. Assalamu alaykum wa